What's up, everybody? Welcome to a, another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web design and development with a little bit of zest. We have a fantastic episode planned today all about building projects to learn. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compressed. And today we have a fantastic sponsor in Contentful. So Contentful is a headless CMS. And the awesome thing about Contentful is it really makes everybody happy. It makes your marketing team happy. It makes your business people happy. And it makes your developers happy. Um, it gives everybody the tools that they need in order for your website to succeed. In fact, it's used by some very popular names like DocuSign, Plaid. So it is a great service. I encourage you to check it out. And special thanks to Contentful for being a Compressed FM sponsor. Hello, my name is Amy Dutton. I'm a lead maintainer on the Redwood JS core team. Hey, y'all. My name is Brad Garropy. I work on the Confluence team at Atlassian. And today's special guest is Brian Morrison II, who is with Planet Scale. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Key emphasis on the seconds. I am developer educator at Planet Scale. So if you're looking at the docs or the blog or the YouTube, there's a chance I've been involved in all of that work. You are, I think, one of the few seconds that I know. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's the history on that? What's the story? I think yeah. it's because you converted from a second to a, or a junior to a second, right? That that's Nope. Just what? because my my dad is Brian Morrison, so I am Brian Morrison the second. The second. I think the story goes is like they considered junior, but it just they didn't like the way it sounded. My parents, so I am the second. Do you have Does a that... third? No, the name stops with me. <laughs> I wanted. <laughs> I like the idea of uniqueness, and I gave all of my kids very unique names, not just within my family, but kind of we tried to pick like generally unique names that you don't hear too often. Oh, interesting. Does that go uh, on like official government documents? Like when you have to write your name is the second truly a part you of like it? Like with the stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, and okay. I've actually gotten, you know, bills with my dad's name in it before. And it's like, this isn't mine. I don't know what this is getting here for me. He's like, oh yeah, that's me, man. It has happened. That's fascinating. I don't know why I thought it was the second only if like there became a third, <laughs> like you're junior until you have a third, but I guess that's not true. Yeah. I guess junior, junior wouldn't fly so well. Right. You probably yeah. get picked well, up a lot in school being a junior, junior. There is a family that I'm good friends with. That I believe they have, I think they have a fourth. Whoa. Yeah. It's definitely a third, if not a fourth. Just got to throw a king in front of it. Then it sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Change the name. All right. So today we're talking about building projects to learn. Brian, what projects have you built recently that you're excited about or that are in your queue? Oh, in my queue. Okay. So those are two different, two different answers. <laughs> yeah. So this is not a recent project, but I guess where I, the reason I, I kind of suggested this topic is because a while ago I wrote a blog post because somebody asked me like, Hey, how do I learn new things? And my kind of suggestion was like, come up with some kind of concept that's near and dear to your heart. So it kind of gets you fired up about what you're trying to build to learn. And then if you build something that actually works and is usable, it's really easy to swap out different components of that, right? So like I built an app called Guardian Forge, which is around, which is for people who play the video game Destiny 2 because that is my favorite video game of all time. And the whole gist of it is people can create snapshots of their in-game characters 
in order to share it with, you know, friends or their clanmates, or if they're a creator, they can do it with their audience or whatever, right? So that was kind of the, the topic that I was very interested in. But the other thing that the other way that I built it is I designed it in such a way that each component was modular. So for instance, when I first started at Planet Scale, and they were like, hey, try out the product and like, you know, what do you think about it? What do you like? What don't you like? It's like, yeah, I could write it to do app, sure. But I can also just swap out the database component of Guardian Forge with Planet Scale and get some real world experience because it's an application that's launched and used by thousands of people every single month. And now I know what Planet Scale, how Planet Scale would work in a real world environment. And I've done that with several different technologies, I guess you could say. So yeah, I think that answers that I think that answers your question. I think I tangented there a little bit, which I have a tendency to do. So I'm gonna apologize to your audience ahead of time on that. How do you swap out an entire database layer? Because I get it if you like leave all the data behind and like just change the you know change the database and the service you're using. But like, how did you move all that data over? Well, I guess that's the trick. Like in in my specific use case, it was really just a proof of concept. So none of the data okay, really okay. got moved over. When I'm designing applications, I think of things in like four major categories. So I know the big thing in the JavaScript ecosystem is like, let's just shove everything into one big, one big stack and then everybody's happy and whatever, right? But I like to think of things more modular than that. So I will build a front end separate from a back end. The database has to be separate, right? Because that's kind of a, a very special use case application. And then I have a fourth category that I call conduit, which is like the wiring that connects all these pieces together. I'm not necessarily talking about like, you know, your actual network and Ethernet cables, but like there's some asynchronous processing that I do in Guardian Forge that kind of, you know, it speeds up the API calls between the front end and the back end. And I use AWS queues for that. So I'll drop yeah. a message on the queue, dispatch it off to a, a serverless function, and then do some processing after the fact. And like if I ever wanted to come along and use something like RabbitMQ, which is another another queuing system I've used in the past at previous jobs. Like all I got to do is update the connection strings in the service endpoint of the you know both the sender and the receiver, and now I'm using RabbitMQ, and now that just unlocks a new you know, skill that I can toss in my pocket, you know, for whatever my future as a developer uh, has for me. It's a deep topic right there, queuing and stuff. <laughs> like essentially, my team right now, our entire goal is to get a handle on like every single event that comes through this asynchronous task queue and there's like oh my goodness. gazillions of them a day like everything that happens on confluence you know and uh, like how many a second a second i don't know but there's like millions a day for sure wow and so yeah the, our whole goal is to build a dashboard that like says which ones of these are going rogue which ones of these are running slowly you know how do i stop a bunch of them or pause a bunch of them or delay a bunch of them. And so like, yeah, having knowledge of like queuing systems and asynchronous tasks is definitely really, really good experience for like big enterprise work. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Amy, you're going to say something. Yeah. Well, I don't want to, we can still talk about queuing. So if I derail the conversation we can bring it back, but I saw this question, I think it's on Twitter. Somebody was like, do you build the front end first or the back end first? Ooh. Which I think is an interesting conversation. I always build the front end first and do like design stuff. But I had a project recently where like a lot of times for me, a hold up on a project that I'm working on, like I make a list at the beginning of the project that says, these are the things I don't know how to do. And these are kind of like the black holes in my head that stress me out because I don't know how to do it. And so it's like, as soon as I can start ticking those off, 
it makes the project feel lighter because all these unknowns are taken care of. And so a project I did recently, I was like, I'm going to start with the back end because that's the part that I don't know that's really heavy. Mm-hmm. And so I worked at it from the opposite side. And from creative problem standpoint, it was really refreshing to do the back end first and now to come and do the front end stuff because it's like everything just clicks into place really quickly. I agree. I start back end first because like, really, to me, that's like the big blocker. That's like, I need to know what data is required and how I'm going to store it. And if I can solve that problem, it's not easy to make a front end, but like now it just kind of unlocks, like now I can do whatever I want because the backbone of this whole thing exists. If I want to go mobile, I can go mobile. If I want to go web, I can go web, but I have the foundation of this thing. Yeah, that's interesting. So like, I think I've had that question before too. And honestly, I don't have a great answer for my approach to it. So that in and of itself is my blocker, where it's like, I really should do the back end first, but I'm kind of feeling fired up about doing the front end. So I'm just going to do the front end, right? Otherwise, I kind of will like push back on myself and just procrastinate on getting anything done. Now that said, an interesting thing that I didn't know, and forgive me, I'm going to make this assumption on you and I could be both of the two of you and I could be entirely wrong, but I think the two of you are more backend focused, whereas I'm a full stack developer, but I'm definitely, but I definitely lean more towards favoring the backend side of things like, you know, logic and architecture and putting all that stuff together. So I, I think I actually kind of do favor doing front ends of applications first, because then I can get a feel of like, okay, the idea I have in my head is possible because I proved I can do it in React or Svelte or whatever I'm choosing to use that day. Now I can go off and build, you know, all the wiring and how to get it all talking to the database and all that stuff. You know, maybe I'm shifting a little bit because I would actually say it was front end first, but it was more so like a lack of skills on the back end to get shit mm-hmm. done. Like now that yeah. I understand authentication so much better, different database patterns, different API patterns. I feel like I can work full stack. And what that's done, especially in conjunction with all these new frameworks that are very route focused is actually like make me do vertical slices. So like I will start with the back end, and then I provide that data through whatever loader or server action and then pass it right on through to the front end. And so now it's almost like feature by feature or page by page. And what's good about that is that you're actually shipping things incrementally. Instead of being mm-hmm. like, I got to build the whole back end and do the whole thing, you kind of mm-hmm. like do what you need to get this view done or this sub route done, and then you take it off. And like, that's kind of like shipping small wins faster. I think that's like, again, this could be a perception thing, but I think that's more of how like senior developers think. One of the things that really drives me crazy as I'm doing, say, <clears throat> course development is it's easier to teach something when you're talking about, okay, I'm going to do all the design stuff. I'm going to do all the CSS stuff. I'm going to do all the like front end component work. Now I'm going to build in the back end. Now we're going to do this. And you focus on all those things, but you really don't have a shippable application until the very end. And I think when you're working on a development team, you talk more in feature sets and you talk about like an auth epic or a, you know, whatever section of the site epic and you're delivering that whole thing, you're not trying to build everything out all at once. So I think, you know, what you're talking about is more of how development teams and project managers think. I dig it. Cool. Okay. So that, that I know that's an existing project that you've made guardian forge. Definitely a big fan. 
What's in your queue? Because that's like an endless possibility of ideas. And I know Amy's very similar. I know you have a huge backlog of things you want to do <laughs> or that are right. bouncing around in your head. It so is. what do you got in yours, Brian? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the hard thing is I've got like 20 things lined up that I want to work on. But I think I've settled on one. And this this is more this is partially to scratch a niche and partially just to like push my boundaries and see if I could do it to pull like this off as a product that I want to market and sell. So I am want to next build a web service for people for I don't even know what you would call them, but there's this whole marketplace where people can um, produce and sell or buy notion templates, right? Mm -hmm. Where you click this button and it populates a subsection of a notion workspace with the template of whatever the, you know, the builder has created. And one of the downsides of that approach, and this is why I've never gotten into it is like, what happens if I need to update it? There's no real way to update your clients notion templates short of telling them to like blow it away or reapply it. And I don't even know how that whole process works from start to scratch start, yeah. from start to finish. And I should, I'm going to have to understand this better before I start building what I'm going to build. But essentially I want to build an application that does just that. I want to take this concept of like, you can build out a notion template. You can pipe it up to my service and it will like cache a version of that template. And then when your user, when their customers come in to buy the template, instead of just applying a like, a static template to their notion workspace, they get this more active experience where like, if the builder says, Oh, hey, I updated this and added a couple of extra fields, because it makes XYZ workflow work a little bit nicer, better, cleaner, whatever, you know, click this button to update it. And then my service will crawl into their clients notion space, figure out the delta between what they currently have and where they need to be and then apply those changes for them. So think of it kind of more as like an active system where where people can sell notion templates, but also keep them kind of in lockstep or version of some in some capacity. That's the dream, right? Whether that ever comes to fruition is a whole other thing. I've already made some progress on some of the back end stuff and like thrown together a minor proof of concept. So it's like one of the building blocks I know I can pull off. And in worst case scenario, if I can't pull this off, I'm just gonna open source the whole thing as like a portfolio item. Like, hey, look at this cool thing I started building. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think that's a good problem to try to solve. And I think about this problem set a lot, especially when it comes to project starters. Like Amy and I have talked a lot about like using GitHub repo templates to like quickly scaffold projects. But the problem mm -hmm. is when you make an update to a GitHub template repo, you just can't apply that back. And we're actually seeing more and more of this now with like Shad CN UI. It's not an NPM package you install or update. They just hand you the code. And that's like a double-edged sword because it's great. You own it. You can change it however you want, but like you won't get updates or like Kent, Kenzie Dodds, like Epic stack, like you start it and that's it. You get that snapshot in that point in time. If anything ever changes, it's gone. And I feel like with code, it's difficult because like you can drift too far away to where like an update would be breaking. And so like this notion template idea is awesome for kind of like minor and patch changes but how do you handle like breaking changes? Always the difficult portion. Mm -hmm. Oh, we should, yeah, we, we I should highlight Goose's response here. Code mods for this. Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. That's good. And especially like, I think React has done this too. It's like anytime they make a breaking change, they typically release a code mod that says, oh, you need to type child props now. Here's a code mod that goes and does all this for you. But dang, like that, you got to have a team for all that stuff, you know? That's a lot. Mm -hmm. We would write some code mods at 
at Atlassian to handle like lint errors in particular situations or getting people from one framework to another. And it's a lot to manage. Yeah, I think it's interesting sitting on the other side of that, like as part of the core team and having those conversations of, do we build a code mod for this? What does the transition plan look like? What are things that we can ask the user? And so anyways, that's been fun for me just to see the other side, to see how the sausage is made. Brian, how did you handle like the diffing and like reapplication of new code in there? Does Notion have a good API for that kind of stuff? It does actually. Yeah. So where I'm at currently is I have, I guess I should preface this, which I have a little bit of background working in DevOps because I, I like building CI CD pipelines mm-hmm. and the de facto kind of language, I guess, if you will, or like a configuration language is YAML. So mm-hmm. what I've done so far in this project is built a, essentially a CLI that will take a YAML, te- a YAML template of a Notion workspace and apply it to a Notion page based on by using the API. As far as like oh. the delta and diffing, I haven't gotten that far yet in figuring out like where things are and where they end up needing to be. Sure. Uh, but that's that's kind of where it's at right now. I have a couple of thoughts and theories. Like one of the things that I might do is store some kind of like metadata configuration info alongside the user's template. It's kind of like a hidden like hidden properties kind of a thing or like a, you know, don't go in this. This is kind of a peek behind the curtains because I can't there's got to be a way that I track state over time for these different Notion pages that configurations are being applied to. Yeah, so you're saying like a whole page can be defined with YAML? Page, a database, the the, uh, the types of a data, you know, like in Notion, there's these drop-down tables where you have multi or multi-tags is a good example. Yeah, yeah Where you okay. can, you know, add multiple tags to a specific field in a database. Yeah, that's kind of the extent of where this has gotten so far is I can build out these YAML templates and then just yeah. run my CLI, which applies them to my own Notion workspace in order to like scaffold out that that workspace in the way that I want it to. So the next step is once I get all the right, you know, fields and, you know, all the data types supported and whatnot, then I'll move on to figuring out how I would track state over time and apply changes and roll things forward or backwards as I need to. It seems like it'd be hard to track the ultimate source of truth on that stuff. And that's the tricky part. And that's where I'm trying (laughs) to figure out right now. So like I'm thinking about tracking it using something like a database system, like a, like Mm -hmm. an actual backend system. So like if I have every single notion page or like, like Gooseman says in, in Twitch chat, every single page is an object. And it's just a nested structure of objects all the way down. But each one of those objects has an ID. So I can theoretically use the topmost ID and then kind of like tag that in the database to say like, hey, this is version one. Version one's been applied here or version 1.2 has been applied here or something like that. And then run some like validation checks against what's there currently to be like, hey, you've got so many fields that are, you know, you've added that are not part of the original definition. Are we keeping those? Are we blowing them away? Like, give the client some ability to do it. So it'll be a system that both the builders of these templates would use as well as their clients to say like, Mm -hmm. hey, you know, they'll get an email. In my perfect kind of scenario, the users would get an email saying, hey, an update to your template is available. Click here to apply it. They'll be redirected to my application where they can review all those changes and then decide whether to accept it or, Mm -hmm. you know, modify it in any kind of way before it ends up getting applied. I know you were like super big into automating Notion, doing like to-do list 
type stuff, like ma- managing your task list and everything. Update on my particular situation. I just slimmed yeah. all that down and use Apple Reminders. And that's the end of it. I got so tired of like dealing with the tech behind it. I'm so baffled that because that system seems so simple. <laughs> like- <laughs> I, I was t- okay. It's like it's like one of those things where like I wanted to stop working on my blog and start writing blog posts. So like you know, it's like I just stopped wanted to working on my productivity system mm-hmm. and just use it. So Brian, are you still into like all the Notion and doing all that jazz? Okay, so first, my comment towards your Apple Reminders thing. I feel like these are the ebbs and flows of those of us that consider ourselves productivity nerds. Yeah. Because I can't tell you how many times I've gone from Trello to OneNote to Mm -hmm. Notepad to Markdown (laughs) to Apple Reminders and Notes. And then, ah, this is too simple. I need something more complex. And then I build out some complicated thing in XYZ application. And then I burn out and go back and do it all over again. Right? Yeah. So... I feel you there because I've done that several times. But as far as automating Notion, yes, I do. I still love Notion. I still love to automate it. Once they release the API, I've been all in and I haven't looked back. Yeah. So much so that, so I actually built this whole system. I use Gatsby for my website. I guess first thing that I'll I'll start with that. I use Gatsby for my website. And I've always had this dream of wanting to write all my, like just do everything in Notion, right? So I built a combination of an NPM module plus some like custom logic that scat like pipes my data from Notion into like cache JSON files next to my website. So all of my data for my website is all stored in Notion from the blog post. Did you build a Gatsby source? I didn't because I don't know how to and I have not had the time to figure out how to like set it up and do it right. Because I feel like that's like what essentially what you described as as what you built with the exception that like Gatsby sources expect you to map a notion to like a Gatsby data layer GraphQL type essentially. But you've probably done 99% of that work beyond like actually sticking it into the Gatsby data layer. And then you can just, you know, use your Gatsby source notion. Although I think those probably exist, but you, then you can make it all custom to your setup and your blog post style and all that. Well, here's the fun thing. It is in the Gatsby day layer. I've even taken it that far and I figured yeah, out okay. how to like create relationships between the different types of objects I'm pulling down from Notion and tossing it into that layer. There you it's go. just kind of it's like one of those things. It's like so like the, where this all came about is I was like I didn't have a whole lot going on for work that absolutely needed to be done. So I was like, ah, I'll go fiddle in my website and figure out if I can pull this off. And one thing leads to another. And, you know, over the course of a weekend, I ported my entire all my data from my previous CMS into Notion, and now I got it all up and working. But then at some point, it's like, okay, this is cool, but I've also like neglected the last several days of things I absolutely need to do. So we need to put this on pause, and then I'll come back to it. And I just never got back to it. I'd love to. I'd love to take the code and make it more open source and accessible for people to use. I'm not, I mean, my website is already open source. I'm not hiding anything. So anyone can go in there and grab what I'm doing. It's just a matter of time and ambition and all the other things that like has a tendency (laughs) of tossing our way, I guess. But yeah, I mean, back to the original question, Notion automation. Yes, I write things all the time. I've got CLIs that hook into Notion and export data for the PlanScale blog and documentation portal, actually. I have a home server with a couple of Kubernetes pods that are running some like schedulers that clean stuff up for me and generate templates for me. So I don't have to do it myself. I don't know. I've done all sorts of crazy stuff with Notion and automation. 
Apple Reminders has templates too. (laughs) (laughs) Stop tempting me because you're going to make me overhaul my entire system. And then five months later, I'm going to come back to Notion anyway. Uh, Well, let me ask you, do you feel like it's fragile? Like that's the only thing I'd be concerned about. If Notion changes their API or anything like that, then doesn't that break all your tools? They actually do a pretty good job of versioning their API. So one of the okay. key, one of the headers is the API version you specify. And I don't know when they're going to start turning off the old ones that may be potentially deprecated. But mm-hmm. as long as you pin the API version instead of relying on the, like the plug, or not the plugin, the SDK. Most of the time, the SDKs will always use the latest. So then, yes, you can potentially introduce breaking changes. But if you specify your version manually, and then you have the ability to like, move forward a little bit slowly, test it, make sure it works out before you bump it up. Okay, can we go down a small rabbit hole? Love really it. interesting that you said Notion uses the headers to determine the version of the API. Thoughts on using headers versus something like a URL path to denote API versioning? I have no strong feelings one way or another. I would almost think that the header might be easier. I think I have an opinion. Like It just came to my head. It's like, okay... If you're using a header, you can set up, let's say, an edge function or some top-level function that essentially acts as a proxy and shoots it off to the right API version. And what's cool about that is like you can have completely separately deployed backends running v1 and v2, and then one proxy server that sends it to those. And v1 and v2 can have you know separate deploys to it. Whereas I feel like if it's in the URL path, you're kind of like saying this is one server running both APIs. I know that doesn't have to be the case. It can still do a redirect. It can still be a proxy. But like, like I, the way that I view REST APIs and the way URLs work is that if it's in the path, you kind of assume that like one server is running this. Yeah. I mean, you could just as easily set up. I mean, if you're talking about reverse proxies, yeah, you can proxy based off of URL path too. Yeah, that's true. Uh, At the web server level. And that's kind of the thing. Like sometimes when these like, you know, A versus B conversations come up, it's like, I think a lot of that is situational. And I think at the end of the day, you can make use, you can make arguments one way or the other. I do lean towards the, I think if I had to choose one, I think the header is probably the smarter choice because the header is more like a piece of metadata that's coming in with the request as opposed to the URL is expected. Like you were saying, it's expected to be something a little more static. Um, yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, if it's not in the path, you probably have to do a bunch of routing logic to, like, assume that it's there. But if it's an empty header, you know, you just have a default version. So it might make, like, defaulting to a specific API version a little bit easier as it gets bumped. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the magical thing with our field is, like, you could stretch your imagination and make almost anything possible, yeah. right? So, I, like... I've been thinking more about stuff like this because I did a lot of architecting for our current application at work and like everything has two sides and i have to be able to explain it and like i feel like i write novels in prs now because Mm -hmm. i have to get out like why i chose what i chose even if it's for little nitpicky stuff i like have been just starting to explain my point of view more just because i don't know it might get people to change their thinking or just be like ah you're still ridiculous like here's my counter argument, but I think it's just good practice, especially as we get more senior in our roles to fully explain yourself. So one comment on that, 
if I can, real quick, Amy, before we move on, because this actually has yeah, nothing to do with code. This, this is more of a businessy thing. That's Anyone fun. who does anything with tasks and to-do lists is probably a fan of David Allen and know who he is. He's the master of GTD, right? He's got, yeah, right. Yeah, well, I've got his back books there. are in my bookshelf. Yeah. When I was younger and I was still learning all this stuff, I discovered one of his seminars called GTD Fast, which apparently he doesn't actually support anymore. Like he doesn't like stand by his presentation. It is like an eight, it was like an, I think it was an eight cassette tape thing that he put out back in the day just to go show you how old <laughs> this is. Okay. But, but I got the digital version of it, right? Now I listen to that thing like all the time. And there are like a couple of key phrases that I pulled out from him. And on that note, Brad, one of the things that he mentions in there is if you ever have to try and sell something, and this I'm, I'm, more, I'm not talking to you, I'm addressing you, but the audience really. If you have to sell something to your boss, you should really think about your boss's boss's reason for why they'd want to do this thing because mm. you'll get instant buy-in. Like the farther up the corporate ladder, you can think about how to like defend your decisions and why you've made certain suggestions on certain things, the easier it's going to be for you to sell your ideas and sell your projects to, you know, it's a good point. going up the chain. Yeah, that's a good point. I did not think about that when I made any architectural decisions. They were just <laughs> purely technical choices. Yeah. But it's paid off. I mean, we're moving so fast in comparison to other teams. So that's good, at least. I was yeah. going to ask you a really snarky question. <laughs> See if you document Confluence inside of Confluence. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> we do. Con- Confluenceception. Yeah, it is one yeah. of those things where like we... Like Atlassian runs on Atlassian tools through mm-hmm. and through. Well, you had to like eat your own dog food, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. And actually, like we have a really good like insider's channel or like a deployed cloud instances that are only for us type things. So like we yeah. we don't call Confluence Confluence. We call it Hello because that's the name oh. of our deployed cloud service that's only accessible inside the VPN. Okay. That's fun. I think now might be a good time to pivot to some backend language type talk. Brian, I know you've been throwing the word go around a lot and I haven't had <laughs> any so experience over my with head. go. None. So if you could give like a, an explanation of go to a JavaScript or to a front ender, like what's the argument for it? What's the use for it? Should front enders or JavaScripters learn it? You know, I also... And then, you know, compare and contrast it to Rust if you have any knowledge to do so. Because I know that all the JavaScript tooling is getting rewritten in Rust. I guess just talk about backend languages and like why it might be useful to start exploring or what got you into it. That's yeah, a big ass question. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Let's actually start with that because that, that will lead into this conversation a little bit easier is how I got started. So yeah. my professional background is actually more in the .NET stack. So okay. I've done a lot of C Sharp over the years, worked with all the different you know, sub frameworks of .NET. I've worked a lot with SQL Server. I even like on a recent podcast I was on that was for PlanetScale. I'm like, hey, you know, it's time to admit something. I have never actually worked with MySQL in a professional capacity until I came to PlanetScale. But like, the, you know, SQL, seek, at the end of it, most SQL is SQL. So it's easy to translate. The reason I got into Go is because going back to being a Destiny gamer, I was playing the game and turns out someone that I was with was also in tech and he was like, he was, uh, he was like an, a, a, an AWS architect for some big firm up in Michigan, I think is what it was. And I was talking about how much I love JavaScript. And he's like, hey, you should really check out Go. And I was like, why would I want to check out Go? JavaScript can do everything. He's like, well, I rewrote, I, not even that. I rewrote all of our, I rewrote all of our Lambda functions from JavaScript to Go. And I saved my company millions of dollars every single year. And oh, I damn. was like, 
Huh. Execution time or footprint? Like, what's the deal? Uh, I don't know. I didn't get any more details beyond mm, that. Okay. Efficiency, I think, is what the argument was. But okay. Because so, it's clock time, right? Like, Lambda functions run on clock time. It's a combination of clock time and the resources you apply to it. So, how much yeah, memory, okay. how much CPU, and then mm-hmm. however long they run. So, when he said that, that really piqued my interest because I'm like, oh, I like AWS and I want to be able to run this thing as, as efficiently as possible. So, okay, fine. I'll throw Go on the back burner. So when I started learning Go and started picking it up, one of the things that kind of was real natural for me to pick up is the fact that it seemed like if you had JavaScript and C Sharp kind of make a child. So simple enough syntax, like many people are used to with JavaScript, but it has that like the same typing system in excuse me, it has the same typing system that something like C-sharp does. And I, this was before I really got into TypeScript, so I know that's kind of an argument there too. How does Go's type system compare to TypeScript? TypeScript is actually closer to C-sharp, believe it or not, because okay. it's kind of like run, built and maintained by Microsoft or some sub segment of <laughs> sure. Microsoft somewhere. So like they've influenced a lot of it and I see it coming through. Go does some things a little bit differently. First off, there's no inheritance. Yeah, there, if I'm saying this right, there's no inheritance. All of the interfaces there, when you define an interface in Go, it's all based on, I can't remember the right word, but it like infers inheritance, right? So like if you create an interface and you assign an, if you say this interface needs so many, like these four methods, right? You can create a struct in Go and just give it those four methods with not, without explicitly stating that it inherits from this interface. And it will say, and Go will automatically be like, okay, this is cool, this matches, I'm good to go. So it's a, I think it's a lot simpler, personally. The one thing that does seem to trip a lot of people up is, and you know, once this is one of those concepts is like once you start to like understand it and know how to use it the right way, the ability to use pointers inside of an application is so awesome because you can, oh. imme- you can automatically figure out, like if I make a change to something over here, how it's going to affect the rest of the application. As opposed to like JavaScript has this kind of thing where it's like, yeah, some things are based on pointers and some things are based on just, you know, values that right. are passed around, which makes it a little more difficult. So I definitely like that, like the ability that I have that control to work with it. Now, I back to your question about Go versus Rust, I don't have a whole lot of experience with Rust, but from what I understand, Rust is a little more efficient than Go, or it can, I should say can be, because obviously it depends on who's writing the code. Rust can be more efficient than Go because... There's no built-in memory manager, I think, is the argument. So you have to manage your own memory. You're not relying on garbage collection to come along and clean things up after you. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say, in I'm like 99% sure the statement is accurate. That's not to say, say you cannot perform your own memory management inside of Go. I think there are some flags you can turn that on or off, but don't quote me on that. So I would say I want to make the argument for Go because I love the language. It makes things super simple. One of my favorite features of it is if you write an application in Go and you compile it, it compiles to a single binary with all of your dependencies and everything you ever need inside that one executable binary. And it's cross-platform too, so you can compile Go into, for Mac, you can compile it for Linux, you can compile it for Windows, etc. So I built many, a plenty of CLI, like my own personal little CLIs in Go that I can run on basically anything, you know, that I want to. Okay, uh, so... I, I could keep going, so right. stop, stop me if I need to stop. Yeah. So if I understand this right, like Go doesn't need a runtime. You don't have to npm install node or, you know, whatever the Go runner is to run Go. Go is compiled. So you write a program and in order to run it, you have to compile it with something and then for your platform and you can execute it on that platform. Is that right? Yeah, I think. Like how do you take a .go file and turn it into something runnable? Uh, Go build. 
go build. Okay. And go, go is an application that you have to install essentially on your developer machine on your, but not on, machine. Not, yes. a, not your target machine. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you don't have to actually, you don't have to have anything related to go on the target machines you're planning on running your application on. Yeah. It, it pulls everything into that one thing. Yeah. Go is just, is also another thing to tech on here is when go was originally being created at Google. They're the ones that started go. They wanted to design it as a way it is, it does front end if you do things like use HTMX, which I've done a little dabbling with, and you use like web templating and passing things through. But it yeah. it is predominantly a backend language. Yeah. And when it was being designed, they really wanted to design it in such a way that it was simple to learn and simple to build things with, but also has like 99% of what you need to build pretty much anything, if that makes sense. So there's, there, there is this concept of like bringing in modules and stuff, and I built my own modules in order to like help my own projects along. But it, none of that is really needed. How's their like web server support? Like, right, if we're a marketing go to web developers, it's got to have good web server support. Is that like a built in package? How does it handle like HTTP requests? Yeah, I think last if I remember, you can create an API in like, I want to say like 10 or 15 lines of code without yeah. installing any dependencies. Yeah. So yeah, That's it's, cool. it's, it's pretty powerful. And there was a book I was reading that, and I don't have any, this is a little bit even over my head, but I guess there is like a, like a standard that development languages when it comes to web serv- web services should adhere to called the 10K test or something like that. It's like, how efficiently can your application support 10,000 simultaneous concurrent connections? Right. And Go does it, if I remember, Go does it out of the box with no additional packages or microservices, like just a single Go binary can handle that much throughput based on how good their like concurrency was designed from, you know, from however many years back. Cool. Yeah. Fun fact, Node is now getting the ability to like compile itself into a binary. So like the runtime plus your application code. I think that feature came out in version 19 that you can do this kind of stuff. Okay. So then, yeah. So then your, you know, target machines or your users wouldn't have to actually install that. They can just install like a binary and executable that can do that kind of stuff. Haven't messed with it though. Yeah, that's cool. I tried doing, for one of my previous jobs, I created a small tool in JavaScript for us. And I was like, oh, I just need it to be like an executable binary. And I I can't remember the packaging framework that I used, but Mm -hmm. like all the thing did was take a simple JSON message, convert it, and then post it to an HTTP endpoint for like an API so we could notify it on events that are happening. Mm -hmm. And it was like 130 megs large. Versus like the same thing, because it has to include the V8 engine and yeah, all your yeah, yeah. modules yeah. and whatever the code you wrote was, right? Yeah. Versus like the same thing in Go was like 5 meg. I, so it was like a dramatic difference in just in sheer size, right? I mean, I'm not a bash guy, but JQ and curl could probably do the same thing. Yeah, I, I know that. <laughs> yeah, but, it was like, but yeah, yeah, good exercise. Yeah. So... Okay, so one of the other kind of comments I want to add on to the learning Go. I don't care if you learn Go. Oh, wow. You just had a convert. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know Diamond. Diamond and I go way back. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he's a good friend of mine. I've known known Diamond (laughs) way back, way back in the day. Like when I first started my Discord server, he was, I don't know, how was like 2018 or something like that? He was like one of the first users on there. And he's been like, we've been hanging out. Well, basically basically poking fun at each other ever since 
we met each other. So. Yeah. So you guys met online because I thought you guys were like old high school buddies or something based no. on the way y'all gave each other crap. Yeah. No, no. He's just, we, we, he joined my <laughs> server and hung out and we just like have been going back and forth ever since. Yeah. It's, it's wild that like everybody in this podcast right now, I just like met online on Discord. Yeah. It, like in the past five years. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the last thing I was going to say is as far as the not caring about your learning go, I think it's important for, and I guess this is more directed towards those, you know, your audience that might just be getting started in their development path and career, like learn another language at some point, because you'd mm-hmm. be surprised once you like expand your knowledge, you will look at things differently. It's hard to describe and give more concrete examples, but I, after learning Go, I can look at JavaScript a little bit differently and it like it became easier for me, even though like the concepts didn't directly one for one transfer, like the code was cleaner, the concepts made more sense. I knew how to structure my code a little bit better just because like some of that knowledge transfers between. So it's always good to like get outside your ballpark, get outside your. I don't know what the phrase is, get outside your bubble. There you go Mm -hmm. and learn something different and unique. I do think Go is a fantastic candidate for that because it is a very simple language and it is pretty easy to pick up and do damn near anything with. Well, and a great point to that is if you're a JavaScript developer, JavaScript's pretty loosey-goosey in what it'll allow you to do. And so if you do learn a stricter language, it might be a little bit frustrating, but it will definitely make you a better JavaScript developer. You might understand some of the quirkiness of JavaScript a little bit better. I've got one more argument for Go. (laughs) Their Their tooling is incredibly anal, and it won't even run your application if you have an unused variable in there. Or if your spacing is not mm. the way it expects it to be, it gives you no suggestion. It gives you no like control over the formatting of the code. And some people like when Love I started that. doing that at front, I was like, this is silly. I'm smarter than the language. I should be able to tell my code how I want it to format. And it's like, that's actually one after doing it for a while. It's like, that's actually one less thing that I have to think about now. Like, let the framework handle, let the tooling handle it for me. Like, I don't care if I have, you know, this thing on this line or I have an, I've, you know, Good example, a good JavaScript translation. I don't care whether my language wants me to have the semicolons at the end or not. Like I know there's like, you know, prettier ESLint packages that will kind of do that for you and guide you down that path. Go kind of has all that built in and you really don't get a say, which I've grown to appreciate, you know, over the years of using it. Yeah, like anytime you start a new project and you start bike shedding over lint and formatting, I'm like, I don't care. Like pick the company standard or pick, it doesn't matter to me. Like just let's not think about it. But I am the crazy person who makes everything an error in ESLint because if that's the way it should be, then that's the way it should be. Like the language, like you said, should tell you, this is what I'm expecting. And don't let anything go in if it doesn't match. Because then it's just, then you're going to get PRs that are like, fix this formatting lint (laughs) issue. I'm like, it should have been done like before it ever got in the code base. So you're a big fan of Husky. Okay. I actually hate Husky. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, like, The package is hard to work with, especially with Lint Stage. They had a major version bump and it like broke everything. And Mm -hmm. Husky was like this weird, it used to be free, but now it's like this weird subscription thing. And I've like wrestled with that. And I also just like, don't like things getting in my way locally. Like your Mm -hmm. editor should scream at you. But if I want to commit, let me commit. And then your pipeline should scream at you. But like, I don't like this like commit and you have to like, have you ever seen people put like tests inside of pre-commit hooks where they like you try to mm-hmm. go commit something and it runs like essentially your entire pipeline on your machine 
And like, that's what I don't like. You should get out of my way and offload that processing. Mm-hmm. It's one of those good in theory things. Like, this sounds like it's going to be a good yeah. idea, but yeah. when you do it, it's like, yeah, let's gonna we're going to turn this off. Well, when you talk about trying to just commit everything that you have at the end of the day or say, okay, I know this is working in a certain state. I at least want to save it so I can come mm-hmm. back to it and try and go a different path. Like Husky won't let you do any of that. And that's been, that has been frustrating to me, but I have come to appreciate opinions in general, because if you have an opinion, then you know where somebody stands and you can make decisions about what framework or what tooling, because you know, it's very clear. This is what this does. And this is how they implement pieces. Yeah. And and when it comes to go, like, because those opinions are literally rolled into the, like out of the box tooling. Yeah. Like, like you were saying, Britt, there's no argument over, over whether there should or shouldn't be semicolons at the end of the lines or whether you should have a comma at the end of a new array. Like you save your file and the tooling fixes all that for you, or at least what it can. And if you go look at anybody else's go code, who's published on the internet, it all looks exactly the same. Yeah. Because everyone uses the same tooling, which is again, it's fantastic. Oh, goose is over here. Just throwing (laughs) gas on the fire. (laughs) Uh, well, I know there's a little bit of lag, so we'll have to wait to get the, <laughs> the download. <laughs> I was like, or we can edit this part of the podcast out. I was like, send him a link and get him on the <laughs> stream. Yeah. <laughs> He's been trying to pick a fight the entire time. <laughs> okay. So time-wise, we're like right at the hour. I knew this yep. one was going to go long because we're all friends, <laughs> which are the best streams. So let's move into the next section of the show. And this is our picks and plug section where we pick something that we like and plug something generally that we've worked on, but it doesn't have to be. So Brian, do you have any picks and plugs for us this week? I can plug something I did or I'm doing. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. I will be giving my first ever public conference talk in person in two-ish weeks. It's going to be July 26th in Wisconsin Dells at the Kalahari at that conference. I am giving a talk on, the title of the talk is Demystifying Deployment as a Service. And the whole idea is we are going to take the things we've grown to love, like that Netlify does, where you simply write code and then it does magic and pulls it online. And we're going to deconstruct that. And I'm going to show you how you can do it yourself. And I'm going to give suggestions and tools you can use. I'm going to go through a quick demo that will show you how I actually did this with Guardian Forge and all the steps involved there. And I am really looking forward to it. Awesome. And then what would you like to plug? Or where can people find it Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Was that about the same thing? I think I picked it in. I plugged it, right? That's <laughs> good. <laughs> Perfect. That'll work. <laughs> all right. Brad, you want to go? Okay, I'm going to be really unconventional today. I'll pick something and then I'm going to plug something really unconventional. So my pick, like I said, I moved to an all Mac setup and I moved to an all Mac setup and I really streamlined a lot of like the crap on my desk. And one of the things specifically was my audio setup. I used to run two interfaces with two mics, one on each computer because my interfaces weren't compatible, blah, blah. All that's in the past now. I use an Elgato Wave XLR as my interface, and I pipe it into a Stream Deck Plus, which allows me to automate not only my computer, but all of my audio settings with like a single click of a button. So like one click puts me in stream mode, one click puts me in record mode, one click puts me in work mode, and it it can change everything about my setup. Mic settings, lights, do not disturb modes on the computer. It's great. 
So like huge win, only two devices sitting on the desk. Very clean. And you have the stream deck with the knob, right? Or stream the... deck plus. Yeah. Yeah. It's got the, yeah. one, two, three, like the eight buttons, the four knobs and the touch bar, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Mine's not that fancy. Okay. And then I'm going to plug something really unconventional, really different. Oh no, the headphones are coming off. Okay. I just got to say, I got some really cool swag from another podcast. And well, I'm you're gonna, wearing some of it right I'm now. I almost plug. pointed it out. <laughs> I almost pointed out. You did. I got the skate deck. And shout out Syntax, Wes and Scott, because uh, <laughs> I've been on a few of theirs and uh, it's always a good time. And yeah. they were really generous and sending me some some cool stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, there's the, yeah. <laughs> the Yeti. <laughs> Uh, I won't hold it right. against you. I like those guys. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Actually, as soon as you took off the headphones, it almost made me change my pick. So maybe I'll have two picks this week. And the reason being is because Brad is co-hosting this week. Brad and I are both a huge fan of the uh, Nike slides. Oh. So <laughs> are you wearing yours? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so good. I need a new pair. <laughs> I don't even I, have anything to like pull up on this is um i can't even feel like i fit in this is my second pair of these slides because i wore them all the way through but i have worn them like nonstop, even throughout the winter i love them so much they're so comfortable so i'll pick the nike slides and then just to tie it back around i was going to pick and i still will pick the hazel app so this is by a company called noodle soft and so we're talking about productivity this is one of the apps that is in my toolbox for productivity. And what that does is you can set up different triggers. So for example, one of the triggers in my downloads folder is that it checks for a pattern in the file path when I say download my bank statements. And then what it does is it goes ahead and puts those in the correct folder for me. So I just download them and then it puts that information where it needs to go. Or if I download a receipt, if I put that in a specific folder, so it watches that folder, It will then change the file name to include that date and it will put in the receipts folder on where I have that on my computer. So it's nice. It does a little bit of file management for me. And that little bit of automation is going to add (laughs) an extra zone on it. But the automation there really does help. Awesome. Well, Brian, we really appreciate you being on the podcast this week. It has been a pleasure. Newt Wood. For everybody that's listening, the audio version, please go to your podcatcher of choice and give us a rating and review. We really would appreciate it. Plus, it helps other people be able to find the show. And for everybody in the chat, I appreciate you guys and your contribution. It really made the show a little bit more lively and engaging. So for now, that's all we've got.